Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering under the radar and headline making stories from across the country every week. We are recording this on April 22nd, 2020, which is Earth Day. I'm Anna Garcia. Welcome, everyone. As you can see, we are recording this under the Safer at Home guidelines. I am in my kitchen and joining me today is private investigator Louis Bolanos from his home. And Louis is a former homicide detective. He also did a lot of undercover work with the uh, cartels working those big drug cases. And now he runs his own private investigation firm called Get Bit. Hi, Lewis. Welcome. Good morning, Anna. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to see you. Although I have to admit, I'm loving your setup. You, you look like you're ready to work a wedding over there. Yeah, how about that? I'm also a part-time DJ. So let me know. <laughs> Not really. You know, these... <laughs> These days, <laughs> right? You have what you got to do, right? Um, Lewis, I'm curious, how is your work going? Like, how are you able to continue doing the things that you do under this pandemic? It's crazy. I, uh, uh, I'm busier than ever. People are at home. Their minds are spinning. Um, and things that they were thinking about getting investigated um, and just didn't have the time to, to make that start happening. Uh, they don't have time on their hands. Uh, so our, our phones are burning up. It, it's crazy. I'm not complaining. Uh, wow. It's, uh, yeah. And they're getting a lot of answers that they've been seeking for quite a while. And so I think it's a good thing all the way around. All right. Great. Well, we're, we're really glad that you are with us here today. We've got two very interesting cases and also, frankly, very disturbing. So I'm curious about your insight on this. This is what we're going to look at this week. A man in South Carolina is facing murder charges after a woman was found beaten to death and stuffed into one of those giant plastic containers. But first, a six-year search for a Texas mom who was nicknamed the nude model kidnapper. She, This search has come to an end after she and her missing daughter have been located. So, Lewis, our first case today is a model from Texas. She was made famous, actually, I would say infamous, after being featured on the Dr. Phil show because of her really violent marriage. She was catapulted into true crime fame by being listed on the FBI's most wanted list for kidnapping her daughter in the middle of a custody battle. 
Well, after six years on the run, she's finally been caught. And her daughter, who is now 16 years old, has also been found, but reportedly in horrible condition. The teen is emaciated, severely underweight, and the girl was living reportedly on candy and sodas. We are talking about 37-year-old Heather Inks. She was arrested at a motel in Madisonville, Texas, on April 3rd, not far from where she disappeared in 2014. Now, Lewis, I find it interesting. We're going to get into the details of the case, but do you think that it's possible for someone to be on the run for so long with a child who would have been around 10 or 11, and it appears maybe she never even left the state of Texas? Well, it's possible because it happened. So we know it's possible. Um, but there's so much luck uh, that came her way in order to stay hidden and keep her child hidden. Um, there's, there's a huge element of that. And I really believe somewhere along six years or so she was missing, uh, that she probably came in contact with law enforcement, her and her child, either together or separately. And law enforcement possibly missed it. There were no indicators to make them want to look further into it as there were in this situation. Well, we know she was using a lot of aliases because that was part of what went down at the motel uh, when police captured her. Now, here's the kooky part. She actually called the police, which, frankly, if you're on the run, why you call the police over something that turned out to be fake is mind-boggling okay well she was once well, a beautiful well let's talk about let's talk about that because I, okay. I i think she called the police because she was under the influence of something and she was not using uh, her normal rationale whatever that is but her layer of, of uh, self-survival uh, was peeled away for some reason whether it was a substance or uh the, the alcohol who who knows, but something happened to make her make that call. And I know law enforcement knows the answer to that already. So it'll be interesting when hopefully they took blood, her tox results come back, not just from her, but from the individual, the male who's in the room with her. And what right. they found they have, in the room. They have not named who that man was. Now, if you're not familiar with this case, even though it made national news for several years, it was really high profile. Heather was once this beautiful, aspiring nude model. Um, When the cops found her, she had changed her hair. She was using an alias, several aliases. And apparently, the man who was with her claims that he did not know about her fugitive status, although police say that they had checked in together the day before. So, Lewis, this is the part that, of course, I find very bizarre. Heather called the police herself on April 3rd, claiming that she had been poisoned by her ex-husband and that he had used some kind of a white, powdery substance. When police get there, of course, you know, they're interviewing her. They're realizing her story is not making any sense. So they ask for her name. They ask for a date of birth. And nothing seems to be popping. And then she starts giving them multiple names, so apparently she's got a lot of aliases. The police are clearly on to her. And finally, one of the aliases that she gave them popped in the police database because she has used that alias before. And then the cops realize they had a fugitive on their hands, a woman who's got a state warrant from Texas and an FBI federal warrant out for her arrest. So if you're a cop, and and all of a sudden you realize in front of you is a woman who is 
wanted and has two warrants out for her, do things start changing in real time? Oh, absolutely. But first, I I think it's really important to acknowledge how that happened, how this the officers on scene were able to develop the information to the point where they realized who they had on their hands. And a big part of that, because I, from what I've read and researched on this, is the officer spent quite a bit of time on the phone with the dispatcher. Quite often, dispatch does not get enough credit. In this situation, it was very much uh, mirrored what they do on a daily basis. Not only do they watch the officer's back as to where he is and who he's dealing with and or she's dealing with and try to make it as safe as possible. But when you have people lie to you about their identity for whatever reason, you just don't know, dispatchers are excellent at helping the officer find out who you have on your hands. And I think that scenario has probably happened a few times in the six years that she was quote unquote missing or running, hiding. Uh, so this dispatcher's work along with the officer is what brought uh, this case to a, a close for now and recovered the child. So when the police on the scene discover that they have a fugitive on their hands, they also now have information that this is someone who is wanted for a parental kidnapping. So now they know that they're looking for one more person. They may have Heather Inks, but now they're wondering, where is Penelope, the girl who at this point is 16 years old? I don't quite understand this, but she was apparently in a different motel room at the motel. Heather finally takes the police to her. And when they open the door and they see this girl, they are shocked because she's about 16 years old and she weighs a little over 70 pounds. She is frail, emaciated, skeletal, and naturally they're very worried. So Penelope is immediately taken to the hospital. She's put into child protective services. And then that's when this whole case starts unraveling. That's when they realize who they have on their hands. So now the mother's been found, the child has been found, and she's in terrible condition. And we're told that in these six years that she never even went to school. So I would think, you know, Lewis, the reason she didn't go to school is that if the mom tried to register her, that was going to send a bunch of red flags to authorities. Right. Absolutely right. That mother trained that daughter and herself on how to behave out in public. Uh, What to say and what not to say, uh, minimized her contacts with any other children, any other adults, anything that would raise a flag and give up their identity. That was a way of life. Yeah. And do you, what do you make of the fact that the girl was in such bad condition, you know, so skinny, unless of course it's possible that the girl refused to eat because of all the stress she was under. And that was her best way of handling a very stressful situation. Yeah, it's hard to say. Uh, Mom was small herself. Um, The the statement that the PI made, I think it came from him, and law enforcement supported it, that she was living on soda and candy. I don't know if you can live on soda and candy. So I I don't know how they're justifying that, but she was emaciated. She had some medical issues, and hopefully that will come to the forefront as to what caused that. In fact, the private investigator who was hired by the father uh, several years ago is the one who has been giving a lot of the information about the daughter's condition and the situation. And um, he claimed that the daughter had been brainwashed 
And that's why she was so fearful and didn't know who to trust and apparently was not trusting the police when they first walked in and tried to help her. So if you saw the Dr. Phil show that they were all on, and we're going to go through that now, right. you you could really make an argument that there were some serious psychological issues going on within the entire family unit, Absolutely. not just the mother no. and child, but the father and child and the mother and the father. I mean, if you look at that, it's a very scary family. So I think we should do a deep dive into the history of this family and what it is that we know that may help us understand how we ended up here. Heather allegedly took the child from the father's home in Houston in February of 2014. A warrant was then issued for her arrest, and there was a huge court battle that was going on between the two of them. A year later is when she got the fugitive warrant slapped on. She was wanted for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. So that federal warrant was issued in 2015. Now, before her life started falling apart, Heather was this aspiring nude model, and her goal was to appear as a centerfold in Playboy. She married Kevin Inks in 2003, and a few years later, they had a baby girl named Penelope. In 2007, they appeared on the Dr. Phil show in a segment about marriages in trouble. And honestly, it is that Dr. Phil show that is the most telling and informative about what in the world was going on with this family. The show revealed that the two parents were horribly abusive toward each other, and they were abusive in front of the three-year-old. The three-year-old kept acting out because of what she was seeing and hearing. So interestingly enough, I found some of the uh, transcript from that Dr. Phil show. And in it are some statements that were made from uh, Heather and Kevin that are just incredible, which by the end of this, the only one I cared about going into this and at the end of the day is the child, Lucy Wire. So Heather claimed on Dr. Phil's show that the first time, this is her quote, the first time I noticed that there was a serious problem with Kevin was the day of my first sonogram. He assaulted me and sonogram after the sonogram was over. Kevin replies, he shares his perspective of what happened after Heather's first sonogram. When she was pregnant with my daughter, she said, I don't want to bring a child into this marriage. Kevin said, well, why don't you just let me get it over with and punch you in the stomach and be done with it? And that was just the start of what turned into more just incredible statements uh, by both these individuals. Heather claims that he had been physically violent with her. She says, he threw me down and strangled me numerous times during my pregnancy, slammed me against the wall, squeezed me so hard that I couldn't breathe, and I thought I was going to break my ribs, held a knife to my throat by threatening to kill me. It goes on. Kevin replies and acknowledges that the marriage was in shambles. He says, I have picked her up by her neck before. I wasn't trying to hurt her. I was just trying to intimidate her and get her out of my face and to leave me alone. I don't want to hurt my wife. I get no enjoyment out of bullying her. And I call BS on that, obviously, because that's the pure definition of bullying is power and control. That's what he was all about at that time. So she's getting a lot of heat for her actions right now. And it goes on with statements like this. But there's a catalyst at the very beginning of this, and he is just as culpable even more so. 
frankly, I think both of them were violent, vicious people based on what I saw on the Dr. Phil show. He apparently tried to strangle her several times, put a knife to her throat, did this in front of the child. Then you could hear the child mimicking back what the mother had said about daddy was a cheater. I mean, how do you tell a three-year-old about daddy cheating on mommy? You know, this is information she shouldn't have known. Apparently the child, she was three, and she knew the C word because he used the C word in describing the mother to the child. So clearly they were both very angry, violent people. What I find interesting is that on the Dr. Phil show, Kevin denied abusing his wife. He did admit that he had some anger issues and that he was working on it. And he also said that the wife always tried to prevent him from having time with the daughter. So already you could see some struggles there, power struggles over who controlled the child. It, it was just a mess. It is no surprise that by 2011, Heather files for divorce. And as part of the divorce petition, she accuses her husband of being abusive. The divorce is granted in 2012. And then in 2013, Heather gets a restraining order against her ex-husband. At this point, there is a massive custody battle going on. And here's what I don't understand. Given what we saw on the Dr. Phil show, given the restraining order against the father, how is it possible that the court ends up giving him sole custody of the child? Right. Sounds impossible. I have no idea how that happened. There may be a viable reason, but it has not come out yet. Right now, everything that I've seen, everything that I've researched points to, to her being the victim of this. Dr. Phil show was very enlightening on, on many levels. And, and I, I don't know if the court was even aware of that show, of the statements that were made. I know that now today they are because they subpoenaed the records from the show. And oddly enough, the show handed everything over, uh, including all notes, all B-roll, all interviews post and pre. Uh, so there may be some, some nuggets in there that could help get some clarity on this. But that child will be affected from this entire situation, this debacle forever. What's interesting about that is because the teen is in protective custody now, and obviously her health is a huge problem, not only her mental health, of course, but also her physical health because she's so underweight. The, the question is going to be, well, if last we left this, the parental rights belong to the father what are the courts going to do? Are they going to return this child who is, you know, needs a lot of therapy back into the arms of this dad? My guess is that the the courts are going to have to look at these tapes, are going to have to look at these parents. And I don't know where she's going to end up. I'm not really sure that there's going to be reunification right now. Uh, that's what the father is hoping for. In fact, the, the father, um, you know, has has uh, already made a statement saying that he's so relieved that his daughter's been found. He's processing the information and they're working toward reunification. I don't know what court is going to allow reunification under these circumstances. And Lewis, you know, his alleged violent streak does not end with this ex-wife. Right. So let's talk a little bit about his history. So his history goes back to uh, 1994. 
Um, he's had a few run-ins with law enforcement, and I just did a very cursory background check on some of his contacts with law enforcement. He's got starting back in 94 contacts for resisting arrest, disturbing the peace, disorderly contact, conduct, uh, burglary of a dwelling with a firearm. Well, Lewis, I did notice in some of his criminal background, there were allegations that were made when he remarried. So he... Kevin Inks ends up remarrying, and in 2017, which is not that long ago, he was charged with assaulting his new wife, Nicole Inks, according to court records, but it seems that the case was ultimately dismissed. That has got to be something that the new family court judge would have to consider. She's going to have to be re-interviewed as to why that was dismissed, but unfortunately, that's something that happens in family law all the time. For some reason or other, uh, a party decides to back off an initial allegation uh, for a variety of reasons, but many times because they just don't want to deal with this. It's too stressful, too painful. But I have here a copy of the complaint that was filed on that uh, by his new wife in 2017. And in it, uh, she states that uh, on the 18th day of July, 2017, in the county of Galveston and state of Texas, did when and there intentionally knowingly or recklessly caused great bodily injury to Nicole Inks by striking with defendant Kevin Scott Inks hands and or fists and or objects and or spit. So there was a violent confrontation at, at some point there. So one or two things happened. Either that incident actually occurred or she lied and made the whole thing up. I'm thinking it actually happened. Wow. So it sounds based on the court record you found there that he punched her and then he spit in her face. Very possible. All the, all the above. Um, so, yes, they, they had a violent uh, interaction there, which unfortunately okay. in most of these cases is not the first one. It's usually the one that is the final straw and, and makes her file some type of court documents to get away from us. So now, it's a history. So we can, to counterbalance that to some degree, um, we do know that the father hired a private investigator to try and find his daughter. And he also made this video plea on YouTube a few years ago, a message that he taped for his daughter in the event she was looking for him. And, and he told her several things on this short video. It was like 10 minutes long, and he's sitting in the living room on a couch, and he's got one of her stuffed animals and a piece of art that he keeps on, on the fridge that she made. And he tells her that he loves her, he misses her, that no one blames her, that everyone in the family knows this isn't her fault, um, she didn't cause this. It's um, And he also directs her several times in the video to ask for help or call 911. We're going to play it, uh, the clip now. I just, I just pray for your safety. So I know living the way you are at this age, I know that you know something is wrong. And I want you to feel safe. I don't care what you've been told. Go to a neighbor's house, pull the police officer aside, and tell him that you've been kidnapped. They will do the right thing and they will protect you from anyone, I promise. So until I can hold you in my loving arms again, I just want you to know that you're thought of and I never gave up. And I miss talking to you on a daily basis. 
I wouldn't even know your voice right now if I heard it, and that saddens me. But hopefully we'll have that time to reconnect and spend a lot of time together soon. But until then, you're loved and you're missed. So Penelope would have been about 12 years old when he made that video plea. Uh, He said that the most important thing to him was for him to make sure his daughter knew he never gave up on her and always wanted her. So how do you balance that with his apparent violent history that we have seen on Dr. Phil and that the court records also seem to reflect? Right. He, he wants it all. He, he just wants it all. And he's still in denial to this day. The man is still in denial. Watch that entire video, that plea for his daughter. And if you weren't aware of the background, it's a bit of a tearjerker. You start to lean and feel sorry for the guy. And I wrote some of the comments and uh, folks that were aware of the Dr. Phil episode chimed in and, and were supporting. Um, and look, he can feel he's still a father. He could want to have a family relationship. He just with her, a, a father-daughter relationship. So while the case appeared to have grown cold for several years, there were no signs of Heather or of the daughter Penelope. This case got a lot of national attention. In addition to the Dr. Phil show, this case was featured on several true crime shows. And once she was on the FBI's most wanted list, she got a ton of attention. And this is what I find interesting. Lewis, at what point does a parental kidnapping uh, rise to the level that it that the case makes it to the FBI's most wanted list? Very seldom does that happen. So I, I went to the FBI website, and in their website, in bold print, it says, if a child is missing and possibly kidnapped, but no interstate transportation is known, will the FBI begin an investigation? And the answer is a clear yes, but there's a caveat. The child involved must be of tender years. And by definition on their website, tender years is 12 years or younger. So she met that category. The exception to that, again, on their website, is the kidnapping offense generally does not, again, does not apply to matters involving the taking of a minor by parents. So they normally do not get involved in parental kidnappings. And like you mentioned earlier, we still haven't seen any evidence that state lines were physically crossed. So there's something else that got FBI's attention why they became involved in this and actually put them, put her on their website as a missing person, an endangered child. And and I just can't put my finger on it, but something is off with that. Yeah, I, I, this doesn't happen with a lot of cases and there are so many missing persons cases and mysterious deaths and mysterious disappearances and they never rise to the level of this attention from the FBI. I'm not saying that the FBI shouldn't do that. It's just very unusual that this case caught the attention of the FBI. I wonder if there were uh, some kind of friends or something going on behind the scenes because it would be nice if other uh, victims of crime got this level of attention from the FBI. I know I would like that. So, of course, now we have to look at what happens from here. Again, the father is hoping for reunification. He and both the PI that he hired are saying that we have not heard the full story yet, that the that things are even worse than we have been told so far. And the father said, quote, my daughter is not in a mental or physical state to handle any more stress. Now, 
I got to agree with him on that one. She absolutely is not. The question is, how are they going to maintain her safety under these conditions? So uh, we'll see what happens to her. Um, We also know that Heather Inks is still behind bars because she's being held now. What's the status there? She's got a very complicated um, bail situation. So there are a couple of things at play here with the bail. There is a state hold on her for $30,000, but because of the federal hold, the FBI involvement, that trumps the state hold. So at this point, she can't bail up. It's a zero bail, no bail situation. So that's probably a good thing for now until this scene gets ironed out. So it looks like Heather Inks isn't getting out anytime soon until they figure this out. And the daughter is in protective custody, hopefully getting medical attention, both for her physical ailments and her mental anguish. And this case isn't over yet because there's a lot missing. There's a six-year gap that's missing in this case. We will keep you posted. And now we're going to move on to our next case, Lewis. New murder charges have just been filed in the case of Celia Sweeney. The 28-year-old was last seen alive on February 28th at her apartment in Charleston. Mark Walton has now been charged with her murder. He is believed to be one of two men responsible for her killing. Celia had gone out on Thursday night on the 27th with a female neighbor and two guys. They went to some restaurants, they went to some bars, and Celia reportedly told a bartender that night that she was trying to ditch them so she could go home. I find that very interesting. That appears to be the last time that she was seen alive, and by Friday, she was not responding to texts or calls. She was supposed to go to work on Friday, and she didn't show up, and friends said that that was very unusual for her. When you hear those very simple things, Lewis, are you already concerned a foul play? Uh, absolutely. I mean, if it starts there, that's where this whole thing begins. Uh, yeah. And bartenders and, and restaurant are they're, they're trained, especially if you have locals that come in all the time with people sitting at the bar, especially females, if they feel uncomfortable, there's keywords or indicators that they have signals with the bartender that they deal with on a regular basis. And this seemed to be a place that they had gone to before. She was familiar, a local there. Um, so that that bell was rang, and that bartender made a mental note, which should not be really crucial later. Um, so it turns out that um, her boyfriend was not one of the two men that she had gone out with that evening, uh, but he had been texting and calling her in the morning, and she was not responding. He found that really unusual. So the boyfriend went over to her apartment, and when he got there, He said there was blood everywhere and it appeared that there had been a struggle and her car was missing. So he called the cops. We do know that they did get a warrant. So they clearly must have thought that that this was going to be the kind of case where they needed to preserve that crime scene. Right. Right. So when the police get there, they confirm there is blood everywhere. It definitely looks like something horrible went down. And later on, the medical examiner would say that she likely died of blunt force trauma to the head. So she likely died instantly. Let's break down what we know and go back. So according to the bartender who saw Celia with the two guys, that was late Thursday night into Friday morning. The bartender said that Celia was at the bar because it was the only way that she could think of to get the guys out of her apartment. So she's already sharing with the bartender, I can't get rid of these people. And she told the bartender, I'm going to leave. I'm going to skedaddle out of here. 
without them knowing to go home. What's interesting is apparently, even if she did leave alone, she didn't end up staying alone. Somehow those two ended up back in her apartment somehow because Celia sent some text early in the morning, 3 a.m. Friday, complaining to her neighbor, the one who had been out with her and some other friends. I can't get rid of these guys. They won't leave my apartment. So the last time anyone heard from Celia was 3 a.m. The last time anyone saw Celia was at that bar. Right. Okay. So those are the facts we have so far. The two guys she was with, it's really unclear how she even knew them, Lewis. It's not clear where they were friends. Maybe they were friends of the neighbor. They've been identified as 32-year-old Buddy Carr and 36-year-old Mark Walton. Okay. At the scene, some interesting things were found. Do you want to go over some of that evidence? Right. So in addition uh, to the extreme amount of blood that was located at the scene, there were shoe boot impressions that left a pattern through the blood. So that's indicative of somebody being there after the blood had spilled. There was also a shell casing located at the scene. And of course, your first thought is that maybe she was shot in addition to this blood force. We just don't know. We also don't know for a fact that she died in that apartment. Yes, most likely, according to the pathologist, that that's probably what happened, but we don't know for a fact that she didn't die there. We don't know for a fact yet uh, that she didn't die by uh, being shot. She may have even fired the round. Who knows what happened in there? We do know that Walton knows what happened in there. Now, what if those bloody footprints, though, are from a common boot you know, that lots of people in their 30s are wearing. Is that the kind of thing that really could help police, though, locate something? Well, shoe impressions, boot impressions, impressions are very, very common in crime scenes like this. So sometimes you may get a generic uh, uh, impression. But sometimes there's cracks, there's wear that is unique to that specific shoe, right side, left side, or even shoe size. So there's a lot of variables here to help pin it down to that specific shoe. And if you find that shoe, it's going to have blood on it. And I think they matched the shoe. They found the shoe. Uh, they it, did. Those- they ultimately did. They ultimately found that shoe. Uh, the man, Mark Walton, who's just been charged with her murder, he apparently had that boot and there were traces of blood. So that's another nail in his coffin. Um, what's also interesting is that no one could find her cell phone. It was not there in the apartment. Uh, the police best they could do at the time was to figure out the last pinging. And it said it was somewhere in or around the apartment at 1130 that morning. I don't know what, if anything, that tells us. It could have just died at that time, right? The battery. It's possible. It's possible. But they'll be able to ping that, I believe, and get a final resting point for that phone. We know she had it at 3 a.m. in the morning. So it sat there untouched probably until 11 a.m. or until who knows. There's a lot we still don't know about this case that we're still waiting. So this is the information that we do know that's public, but I'm sure that a lot more is going to come out in the next few weeks and in the next few months. So back to her car, she drove an Audi and the car was missing. Turns out it was found the following day abandoned in a parking lot about a half mile away. Witnesses and surveillance video from the area lead police to believe that the Audi S5 had been driven out of her apartment complex to this other place 
by a man and that the Audi was being followed by a large four-door pickup, which also pulled into that parking lot. The guy was driving the Audi, gets out, gets into the pickup truck, and the pickup truck takes off. What's What's interesting here is that police were able to identify that pickup truck, and it belonged to Buddy Carr, one of the guys who had been out with her that night. And I would add to that, Anna, that they also recovered video surveillance of that pickup leaving, her car leaving, and they timestamped it at 6 a.m. So now we know her last contact with anybody was at 3 a.m., the last time that possibly alive, whether she was in that vehicle or not, was 6 a.m. So you have a three-hour window to work with. That's huge for the investigators. It is. So now they know they're looking for Buddy Carr, obviously because he was with her, but also because of all this information they're getting about her car and the surveillance video. So they're looking for Buddy Carr. The cops in Charleston asked local police in Spartanburg County, which is about 200 miles away, to please do a check for them because they want to get to him as quickly as possible. When local police show up at Buddy Carr's house, they found that very same white pickup truck parked, and then they found Carr dead inside his house, dead of an apparent gunshot wound, self-inflicted. He committed suicide. Okay, he's dead, and now they start searching the scene, and they find one of these big plastic storage containers, you know, the kind with the lid that you, you know, it's like a, a big bin, if you will. They found that on the property, and inside this black container was the body of Celia Sweeney. Police think that Buddy Carr likely committed suicide probably not long after he arrived at his house and he put the bin with Celia in it outside because the coroner thought he had been dead about 48 hours. So... Given the time frame, she was not found until Monday. So when the police went into Buddy Carr's house, they found more than just Celia's body and this bin. They start finding receipts of a trip to Home Depot in Charleston near Celia's house. They have receipts for things like latex gloves, concrete bags, camouflage nylon straps, and also the bin. So the cops go to Home Depot They look at the security cameras and they find video of the two of them, Walton and Carr, buying all this stuff, including that black bin that she was found in. So now we have the receipts. We have video of them. They bought that on the 28th, the day she went missing. So, Lewis, does that make you think that they hadn't intended to kill her, but then once they did kill her, they said, oh, I guess we better buy some supplies, clean stuff up, get rid of the body. Yeah, it, it sounds like it was a heat of the moment type thing. Uh, she had left him at the bar and they did not want their night to end. I, I suspect and I hope that there was not a sexual assault on top of this. Um, and, and that'll probably come with the autopsy. I'm sure we'll be able to confirm that. But it became very real to both these individuals, uh, more real to Carr, that they were their own worst enemies. They left a trail. Thank goodness they weren't the sharpest knives in the drawer. Because if they wanted to get caught, they did everything they needed to do to get caught. Um, and, and thank goodness for that. We were able to bring the states to a closure much faster. 
uh, than usual. Apparently, the police also looked at the traffic cameras along the interstate, and they actually found video of the pickup truck with the black container in the bed of the pickup truck. So the theory is that, again, we don't know for sure if she was killed in the apartment, but most likely because it was such a, you know, such a bloody scene. And then they stuffed her into this container and they transported her 200 miles away. I don't know if the plan was that they were going to bury her or what they were going to do with her. But with the amount of blood that was in that apartment, what in the world did these two think was going to happen? Exactly. Exactly. No, not very smart at all. So when they find her body, they find Carr dead of suicide. Obviously, now they're looking for Walton, the other guy. Police go, they arrest him, they charge him with an accessory after the fact, and that's when they found the boot that seemed to match the tread at the apartment that had traces of blood on it. What becomes interesting is, as the investigation proceeds, and even though we have not been given a lot more information, Walton has now been charged with murder. They have upgraded the charges against him that makes sense he was there he was there right it it makes sense i don't see why he wasn't charged in the first place but they may have a tactical reason for doing that investigative reason for doing that i think it'll also be interesting i want to hear them confirm that the cartridge that they found at the suicide scene matches the cartridge that was left behind at the apartment at Sheila's apartment if it doesn't you have a whole different dynamic here so uh, we'll see if they match. Lewis, were you able to get any information on Buddy Carr or on Walton as far as criminal history or anything like that? No, I was. I was. Again, just a very cursory search. Uh, Mr. Walton, pretty much, uh, at least in just locally there in Charleston County area, just a couple of uh, uh, failure to pay. He was uh, somewhat of a deadbeat dad. Um, so he had a history of that. So in a cursory background on Buddy Carr, he has a history of being contacted for weapons, sales and delivery of weapons, possession of stolen weapons, and he also has a couple of arrests for possession of methamphetamine. Uh, So he's got a bit of a history there. Uh, But wasn't Buddy Carr also a former Marine? Apparently he he served for six years. Uh, Some people were looking at his Facebook profile and one of the things they found very interesting were a lot of references and photos of the hell's angels motorcycle gang interesting i i don't know if he was a a a member uh but he had an attraction to him which is that uncommon doesn't mean that he associated with them but maybe he liked to live the uh life mentally that he couldn't get in so Walton has had a bond hearing, and um, of course, Celia's family members were there. She's originally from Boston. She had moved there probably about a year ago to Charleston, and the family member got a chance to say something publicly in the courtroom, and she said, I think that you helped cover up what he did to her, and you could have chosen to help her, and you chose not to. You could have called the police. You had choices, and instead you help hide her and you caused so much pain. 
If that is all true, I believe that sums it up indeed. That's what he did. Uh, I find that besides being a powerful statement, I'm not that familiar with what goes on in Charleston courts, but in California, that is very similar to a victim impact statement. And usually words like that are not spoken in court until after the individual has been convicted. Uh, To do that before here, I I just don't understand how that was allowed. I, I, I have no idea how that happened. Maybe that's the norm. But that's very early in the investigation, and you saw how much media play that got, that scenario. And I believe it was uh, the mother of Cecilia that said that. It was a family member, possibly the mother. Um, it's it just it, interesting. That really stuck out to me that that was allowed to happen, and it's getting a lot of play. You know what? Uh, I have no problem with people speaking up before a case has actually gone to trial. I know everyone is, you know, assumed presumed innocent until proven guilty. But I got no problem with the community speaking up at things. Why why do we not have an opportunity to say something when someone has clearly been murdered? There's no question about that. And he was there. I'm not saying he killed her, but he was there. So he must know something. I, I, I just sometimes feel that, and I know a lot of people are going to get upset, but I just feel that sometimes the rights of the families and the victims seem to be at the bottom of the list when it comes to rights. Right, right. You're right. That's an interesting dynamic. Why does it? Why is it such a, a, a huge difference between California and how they handle this in this courtroom? Well, I'm sure we're going to get a lot more details when and if this goes to trial, and hopefully they'll be uh, releasing a lot more details, which will help explain why in the world she was murdered. A young woman with her whole life ahead of her. It is now time for our comments section. And we have uh, two very unusual cases that have caught everyone's eye here and everybody's talking about. This is about a fugitive couple convicted of stealing millions of dollars from disabled veterans. All right. Already I'm annoyed at them and mad at them. Uh, A New Mexico couple has pleaded guilty to stealing millions of dollars from the elderly and disabled veterans. They were caught in Shawnee after weeks of being on the run. Susan and William Harris and two others ran this financial services company with a lot of disabled employees, and they had clients from the region. All right, so all four have now pleaded guilty in federal court to stealing $11 million. Now, here's the interesting part about this case. It's how they found the couple. When the authorities finally got to their very fancy gated house, um, they were gone, but they noticed that there were pictures of them. Of course, the authorities knew what they looked like, but they also had plenty of pictures of their chihuahua. Aha. And all of you who follow me know I love chihuahuas and I have chihuahuas. They're very unusual dogs. Okay, so now the cops are searching for them and they don't say how they ended up looking specifically at one apartment complex where they thought they were hiding. So the cops started doing surveillance and bingo, who runs out to take a little pee in the yard, but the Chihuahua. They didn't see the couple, but they saw the Chihuahua. Bam, bam, they arrested him. (laughs) Perfect. So if there's a reward, that Chihuahua should get it. Donate animal rescue. So make it come full circle. Oh, my God. I just, you know, sometimes it's those little things. I know I, you know, I I do a lot of surveillance myself when I'm trying to get someone to talk. And one of my favorite times to get people is when they're walking the dog. 
Perfect. The dryer sits down. Sure. Right. It's either that or when they're outside smoking. The two times that you can really get someone outside. All right. So these are the comments that uh, viewers and listeners left. Laureen E. writes, man's best friend. Good job, little one. And Steffi L. writes, cats don't snitch on their owners. (laughs) Now, here is a coronavirus related um, crime story that is just fascinating. A Connecticut man was caught living basically inside a restaurant. He had been eating and drinking for days. Now, the restaurant was closed because of the coronavirus. Um, Officers say that they responded um, to the restaurant because the owners were still every few days, you know, checking their property, making sure everything's okay. Well, they found Luis Ortiz asleep in the restaurant with a bottle of rum. Apparently, he had eaten everything there and he had been drinking all the liquor. And they even think it's possible he was taking some of the liquor out and who knows, maybe stealing it because they estimate that at least 70 bottles of liquor were either consumed or stolen in this time period. And if you look at his mugshot, he actually has a pretty satisfied look on his face. I guess his tummy was full. (laughs) If he's going to go down, go down with a bang. Wow. Too funny. So these are the comments. Alonzo G writes, he was practicing for the zombie apocalypse. Dennis S writes, trying to survive while the stimulus check arrives. Hey, you got to do what you got to do. And Jonah writes, 70 bottles of liquor in four days. That's why I think he probably was out selling it or sharing it. All right. Well, that's it for today's episode of True Crime Daily, the podcast. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find you or connect with you, where can they find you? Yes, ma'am. We're at getbitinvestigations.com and all our social media contacts on there. Our phone number, uh, everything's there. So getbitinvestigations.com. Thank you so much. And everyone, you can find me at Anna G News on all social media platforms. That's Anna with one N. You know, I really enjoy reading the comments that you all leave on YouTube. You know that I read them because I respond to so many of them. And what I really love is when you give us your theories on what you think happened. Uh, Lewis, I'm always astonished that, you know, people come up with these great theories and like, I missed it when I was reading the case. I'm like, oh, I never thought of that. So I really enjoy it. Uh, it's the interactive part of this podcast that that I really, really, really love. Uh, As always, you know that you can find our podcasts wherever you listen to your podcast, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and of course, on YouTube. And you can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. Bye, everyone. Bye.